Good morning. How are you? Um, so, um, I am Janice. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, Pastor Joe is not here this morning, but I want you to know it's not because he overslept with the time change. All right, he's actually in Tennessee. There is a Vineyard Men's uh, Conference down there that he is checking out. He and another fellow from the church here, they'll be back later this afternoon. And so um, I get to speak to you today. And um, we are going to be working out of the book of Luke. So before we get there, I just want to give you a heads up. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and head to Luke chapter 9 or find that on your devices if you want to do that. And if you don't care to do any of that, you're welcome to just follow along on the screen. That'll be, that'll be super good. All right. Um, when I was a child, there was such a thing as a department store. I don't know that we talk about those anymore, but um, that was back in the day when nothing was open in 24 hours, except maybe a gas station. Do you know what I'm saying? These things, I mean, so imagine if you're, you know, born after 1990, imagine a Target that actually had a closing. Just imagine COVID. Maybe that's better, right? There was a closing period, um, and nothing was open all the time, it seemed like, during COVID. Well, at any rate, as a child, I would go to this department store. It was called Goldman's in Ohio. I have no idea if it was a big chain. I don't really know. Um, I just remember this about it. I was the youngest of, of the children in my family, and I remember being there with my mother pretty often, and it had all the things that you would find at a Target, except the food, and, and the other place that we would always go was the fabric store, because I grew up as a, a Mennonite, and we didn't purchase any of our clothing. We had to make it all. And so fabric store was a, a place you had to go pretty often. But here's what I remember. I remember being in a store and hearing somebody over the loudspeaker go, please bring your purchases to the front. And they would flip the lights to kind of alert you that it's time to, it was their way of getting rid of people in the store, right? They're trying to get you out of the store. They were always, now this didn't happen to me once. This is a, this is a fairly frequent memory in, in my life, right? That the lights would flip and I would have to find my mother wherever she is and head for the door. Now at this age, my mother's 85 and I'm thinking, mom, what were we doing? Why are we always pushing the limits everywhere we go? Why are we staying and having to get chased out of the Goldman store? I now have a new appreciation or, or strange idea about what that meant. But you know, even at this age, there are still places that I hate to leave. There are places where I get there and I'm like, you know what? You just want to stay until they chase you out and close the doors. Or you're just relishing, you know that the time is ending, and you're like, oh, you, you know that they're getting ready to shut down the restaurant, and it's time to get out of there. Maybe, you know, you're at the pool, and you know that it's the last day of the season, they're getting ready to close. Maybe it's the last day of your vacation, and you're on the beach. And do you know that feeling that you want to savor it, and you're kind of sad that it's ending, and yet you're enjoying that whole spot of where it is? Where do you like to linger? I mean, probably not Goldman's or, depart or a fabric store, I'm guessing. But where is it that you like to linger? Where are the places and times in your life where you wish time would just stand still for a little bit? You know, give you a few more seconds. Maybe it's as you see your children growing up and you're like, man, just give me a few more seconds of this, right? At, when they're actually sleeping, whatever that is. You know, um, or when, you, when you're saying a goodbye to somebody you love, can we just have a few more minutes before for the separation? Um, maybe you just want to freeze that place of rejuvenation before you have to get back 
into your regular life and whatever that favorite spot is, or maybe it's just, just to live a little more life as it stands right now. What is it that you want to prolong in your life? And what is it that makes you want to stay somewhere? That's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. In the passage we're getting ready to read in Luke, um, let me set it up just a little bit because it's going to start with, and then six days later. So what has happened right before the end six days later is that Jesus has been out with his disciples. He's actually been training them to go out and do the work that he has been doing, sending them out two by two. And um, he also has this little discussion that's recorded in each of the accounts that go along with this particular passage. This, this scenario you will find in three different Gospels. But the situation before it is this. Jesus says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who do people, who do people think I am? And they go, well, some of, some of them think you're Elijah. They think Elijah has come back to life and that's who you are. They think that. And then he says to Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. <laughs> we got that figured out. You're the Messiah. Okay, that's your backdrop for what's going on. Now, Luke 9, 28 through 35. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Can I just say for a few minutes, it's okay if you have three best friends. You do not have to have 48 groomsmen. Do you know what I'm saying? It's okay if you have a bestie. It's okay if you have a BFF. It's okay if you have somebody that you trust more than the average bear, and Jesus did. There are a few people that he spent a lot more time with. Oh, that must have felt really unfair to everybody else. You know what? That was part of the human, human experience that he was living. All right? So he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. All right? And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. By the way, there are people who believe, we do not know what time of day this is, but there are people that, that scholars who believe that because the disciples were so sleepy that this is another occasion of Jesus praying in the middle of the night. <laughs> and these guys just can't, they just can't hack it, right? Because he would go off and go up early in the morning or whatever, so they think that that might be the case. And one of the other Gospels, it appears that maybe they're overcome in a way that makes them sleepy, but whatever the case, right? When they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, meaning Elijah and Moses, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And the next day, when they came down the mountain, a large crowd met him. All right, that's where we're going to camp uh, today. Let's start with the first obvious thing. He takes his posse of three up on a mountain to pray, or in, one, in several of the other accounts, it says to be alone. He goes up on a mountain to pray or to be alone. I want you to know that God can meet you in a lot of places. 
He can really meet you in a lot of places. But you are primed for encounter when you meet him alone. When you're willing to find time to be alone with God, you got a real chance of having a thin space, meaning a really thin separation between the physical world and the supernatural and where God is. Students who are in this room, whether you're college students, whether you are young students, can I tell you, you are never too young to start this, to find a, a time in your life, in your routine, to set aside time to be alone with God. Now, listen, I know a lot of us are busy adults, and we commute, and we find our time alone with Jesus on our drive, on our, on our commute. I just have to tell you that I have never had a, a well, I, I shouldn't say that. I find it difficult to have a real encounter with Jesus when there are other motorists around me. Do you know what I'm saying? If I was alone on a highway, maybe. But when there's a whole lot of other things that I'm having to pay attention to, it's a different animal. Maybe you can do that. I don't know. But find a time, devote a space in your life, a place. And notice that Jesus didn't own this space, right? He would go off into the wilderness or up on a mountain. He would go somewhere. He did not own the property where he would go to devote time to spending with God. And you don't, you don't have to have a lot of space. When our children were young and our house was the fullest with our five children and sometimes more people than that who were staying with us, that is when we honestly had the least square footage. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, seriously, we have lived with 10 people and about 800 square feet. Um, I remember when, um, when our oldest son was in high school maybe, and there was just no place to be alone. He shared a room with his brothers. There wasn't any place to be alone. And he had to leave the house. He would get up and put his earbuds in, and he would run away from the house to be with Jesus. You know, and people would talk about it. Yeah, Joseph's running the thing and whatever. I mean, whatever. I remember the only time I felt alone in those spaces was in the middle of the night. I would get up in the middle of the night. That's still true today. You know what I mean? There's the one time when I felt like nobody was asking anything of me and I could be alone with God. I don't know what your situation is. Find a time, find a place where you can have an opportunity for that habit. Notice this too, that while Jesus is praying, his face changes. The word in the Greek it refers to this transfiguration, meaning transformation, and it has something to do with a metamorphosis. There's something that's happening there that made him brighter, that he's reflecting something. And I love this. Jesus is unaware of it, it seems. It's other people who notice this about him, right? He seems absolutely unfazed. It's not unlike the time when Moses would go up on the mountain to spend time with God. And he'd been up there alone for a long time. He'd come down, and, and Scripture says that his face was shining. This is what it says in Exodus 34, 29 through 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses... His face was radiant, and they were afraid to come to him. He ended up having to wear like a, a, a cloth, a veil over his face, because he had this glory tan going on that frightened everybody, right? Here's the, here's the deal. Number one, an encounter with God changes us. It changes us. Now, hopefully, we're not going to frighten people away with our appearance based on uh, our time with Jesus, but a meaningful encounter with God will change us because we will begin to reflect God in ways that we maybe don't realize and we really can't explain. We don't realize it or we can't explain it, but it will change us. 
Perhaps, again, you, you long for something. Maybe you long for a, a, an earth-shattering moment with God. And you're just like, where are you? I haven't been able to get that. I would suggest that that was part of what drew a lot of people to Asbury was like, if there's, if there's something going on there, I want in on this thing, right? Again, can I challenge you, adults, to spend time, set aside time to be with God? You know, when, uh, when Joe and I were first pressing really hard into the things of the Holy Spirit, which was not a, a big emphasis in the faith tradition that we were raised in, um, I remember a vineyard pastor saying to me, I'm pretty convinced that anybody who spends 30 minutes alone with God every day seeking his face and asking for his presence will come up empty in a month. I, I just don't think it'll happen. And I thought, there's something to that, right? Um, every time Jesus went on a mountain, he didn't have this kind of an encounter. And nobody's reporting that. But, but there were times when that happened. He clearly had a habit of being alone with God, all right? And notice this too. While he's up there, he and, and Moses and Elijah are talking about his future. They're talking about his future. This isn't just a time where he's like, oh God, you are so great and I'm so glad I'm your son and by the way, here's all the things that happened last week that I'm thinking about or whatever. No, this is talking about the future, okay? A future that frankly Jesus appears to be dreading. He appears to be dreading this event the way that he appears to be dreading it at Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he will say, God, if there's any other way, I want to take that door number two. I'll do it, but if there's any other way, I'd like to be out of it. Now, here's the difference between dread and worry. I do not think Jesus was worried. I think he was dreading something, and I think we need to think about this. When you know something is coming, but you don't want to go through it, Right? If you, are, if you are pregnant in this room, you know you're going to go through childbirth. It's it going to happen. That's not a worry. You might dread it, but that's not a worry. It's going to happen. Worry is imagining something that might not happen, and you get consumed by it. And you get consumed with that thing. So you can arm yourself for dread. You can lean in on God and your faith community for strength, but you can't arm yourself for worry. Worry is this tool of the enemy, and it's designed to paralyze you. So if you're consumed with worry, God is inviting you to understand where that comes from and that you can lay that down. You may take a, a, a lot of discipline to lay that down, but capture those thoughts and lay that down. That's different than anticipation that is a real kind of dread. So here's the thing. If Jesus can talk to God about the things that he's dreading, guess what we can do? We can take all of that to him. He is ready for that. He is not annoyed if we come to him screaming about the things that are coming in our life, the, the diagnoses that we've been given, the, the uh, predictions that are there that you know are coming down the path for you that you don't want, the separations that are in front of you, situations that we would totally avoid if we could, right? Because if that is the valley that we are destined to walk, he's going to be in there with us. He's going to walk us through it. We don't have to be brave alone. Now listen, you may not get to visit with Elijah and Moses, but God will set you up with community and the strength um, that you need to face your future. All right? Number two, an encounter creates a desire to linger. It says, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter says to him, Master, it was good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
in parentheses, he did not know what he was saying. I absolutely love Peter. He's one of my favorite characters in the scripture, and I think it's because I married someone who is very Peter-like, right? I, didn't, I married a, a Peter. His name is Joe. But there are aspects about his enthusiasm and passion for Jesus that just mirror the way Peter behaves in scripture. And Peter gets a lot of heat for the way he acts in this particular scene, right? That, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about, that he didn't know what to say. Um, but Peter is almost always the first to ask. When Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are in a boat and they're terrified, Peter's like, I'll come. He's the first one out of the boat. Jesus is on the shore and calls to them and Peter is in the water and he's headed out. He's the first to respond and I think that's great because here's the other thing about Peter that I don't think we think about because we just read scripture. The fact that we know that Peter didn't know what to say tells me that he told that story on himself right? He told that story to Luke. Luke doesn't know that he didn't know what to say. The fact that Peter felt the way he did after he denied Jesus, the only person who could have known that was Peter. Peter freely shares his failings. Peter freely shares the things that he, you know, wishes he had done different as, as a part of who he is, and I love the vulnerability that he has in that. But here's what Peter is saying. And he says, let's build, let's build three tabernacles. This is what he's saying. Let's camp. How about if we just camp here for a little bit, right? Let's stay longer. Let's linger in this moment. As a matter of fact, let's get a mattress. Let's just stretch out here. He's asking, will you stay longer? You guys all want to camp? You know, he's inviting Moses and Elijah to do this. He's trying to prolong the moment because he recognizes that something significant is happening. Something special is happening in this moment, and he wants it to keep going. He wants more of it. He's like, I want to have that. Of all of the places that we are tempted to linger and to prolong, this is the place that Peter wants to linger and freeze time. And I love that about him. And yet, camping is temporary. Camping is temporary. I, for one, don't love camping. I don't. I don't love camping. I love me a campfire. You go camping and invite me to your campfire and I will show up, right? I might even bring marshmallows and coffee. I will be there. But I want to sleep in something that will not blow away in the 70-mile-an-hour wind gusts that we had a week or two ago. You know what I'm saying? I want the structure that I sleep in to be a little more secure than that, even though I really would love to be around the fire. But that's how we know it's camping, is that whatever your structure is could blow away. Whatever the structure is, can be transported, maybe by you, maybe by wind. It's not designed for property appraisal. You don't pay taxes on your tent, right? This is, you may have to pay, rent your space, but you don't pay taxes. On, it's a temporary thing. And what Peter is really referencing here, and it's kind of a weird word to all of us because we're not Jews, when he says, let's build three tabernacles, he's referencing the Feast of Tabernacles that all of the Jews celebrated on a yearly basis. And sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. It is booth, booths. It is the um, last feast, it is the seventh feast of seven feasts that the Israelites would celebrate to remember 
their time of 40 years wandering in the wilderness where they lived in temporary dwellings. They did not have any permanent structures. And so this is what it would look like. And, and there are still many places where Orthodox Jews continue to celebrate. You look it up. It's really intriguing if you look up Feast of Booths under images. And what they're making is like a little 10 by 10 outdoor structure right near their home, maybe right outside their home, uh, often out of branches or brush or palm trees. So imagine like a, a, you know, a tent canopy that we would all take to a ball game on a hot day, something like that, only the branches allow some, you can see through it, so you can see the night sky, it's not going to be waterproof, sometimes they're surrounded in canvas, and families will take out their table and chairs and they will maybe have their meals out there for seven days, sometimes they'll even arrange to sleep out there, and that's what they're celebrating is a tent of um, the Feast of Booths. And so that's what he's suggesting. That's what Peter is saying. Peter is not saying, let's build a stone abode here and we're going to capture Elijah and Moses and, you know, hold them for all time. No, he's saying, let's, let's do the Feast of Booths up here. Let's build these tabernacles. It's also intriguing that he says, I'll build three for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. I guess Peter, James, and John are out of luck. I don't know what they're doing. They're, you know, they're, he didn't say we're building six. We're only building three for some reason, and no one really knows what to make out of that. But here's the deal. He's babbling, right? He doesn't know what to say, and he's a nervous talker. Do you know anybody like that? It's okay. It's okay. And yes, God interrupts him. God absolutely interrupts him, but God doesn't exactly rebuke him for his idea, because there are worse things in life than wanting to prolong an encounter with God. There are way worse things than that. It is a noble idea that Peter wanted to keep this going a little bit longer, and yet he has no control over that. You know, uh, unless you were sleeping under a rock, you probably know that uh, Asbury University a few weeks ago in the early part of February had something that some people have called revival. Asbury itself calls it an outpouring. Um, I studied Great Awakenings, so I would call it something like that. And I have to show you one of the favorite, my favorite pictures that came out of all of the stuff that hit social media during that time. And here it is. It's not of really great quality, but can you see that mattress there? And you see that kid that looks like a mummy with the blanket over his head? This is in the early days. There's not that many people there. There's a lot of empty chairs. This was on day three, I think, of, of this event over there where... And it all started with about 18, 19 students who stayed late after a chapel on a Wednesday, and they just kept worshiping, and the worship went round the clock. It went um, 24 hours a day. Even when they finally decided they had to keep people out and actually clean the building and do some maintenance, they asked worship people to keep playing. So there were people who were playing in the middle of the night for a four-hour set to an empty room just to keep the worship going. I can't get that out of my mind. That kid drug his mattress from his dorm across lawns into that. Obviously, by the time 50,000 people descended on Wilmore, that couldn't happen anymore, and that kid had to take his mattress out of there, and there was standing room only, right? But he's not even really awake. He's just saying, I want to not miss one minute of what it feels like to be in this room right now. I don't want to miss any of it. I think I just want to sleep in the presence of God, where would you like to linger badly enough to haul your mattress? To drag your mattress somewhere and be there 
to be in God's presence. This guy, I don't know what his name is. It ought to be Peter. That's an amazing thing for me to think about what that is. Think of the places where you have sacrificed personal comfort in order to be there, be somewhere special. And have you ever had an encounter like that with God that you wanted to just keep going? Whatever this is, I want more of it. Whatever this atmosphere is, I want to sit in it. I just want to be in God's presence. Because this is what happens when that presence falls. Verse 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice from the cloud saying, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. See, when the cloud shows up, the atmosphere changes. And what's particular about a cloud changing atmosphere is not temperature, it is visibility. When a cloud shows up, you can't see through it. You can't see anything else that's going on. And I think there's something specific about that. My father was a, a small plane pilot. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what you called it. He was, he was um, certified and rated to fly um, small planes. Well, um, he shared ownership of a Cessna 172, if anybody knows what that is, a little four-place. And, uh, and I grew up as a kid flying with him, sometimes in the baggage because there wasn't enough seats for all the kids. I was hoping I wouldn't fall out in the middle of the air. And, uh, and he flew. And I remember that there was a time when he was only rated VFR, which meant that he had to follow visual uh, rules of flight. And so if it was a cloudy day, if it was a stormy day, and we had flown to visit family over the mountains of Appala uh, Appalachia down into South Boston, where we had a lot of family, we'd fly there. It was like three hours of flight versus 10 hours of driving. And if we dropped in there and a storm came up, we had to stay because he could not fly in a storm. He could not fly in poor visibility. And I remember the day when he got his IFR rating, right? His instrument rules of flight rating, which meant he could fly when he couldn't see around. And I used to ask him, how do you do that? How do you fly when you don't see a horizon? You have no idea. And he said, I have to trust my instruments. Now I have to see my instruments and I have to trust those because I cannot see what's around me. I can't see another plane approaching. I can't see how high I am off the ground. I cannot see what I'm about to run into. I can't see if there's a mountain. I can't see any of those things. You have to trust the instruments. I'm suggesting to you that when you get in the middle of a cloud, you have to trust God in those moments because you can't see anything else that's going on. Here's another example of when a cloud showed up in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, this is when they brought the ark and put it into, the Israelites brought the ark and brought it into the tabernacle. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. God's presence takes up space. God's presence will take up space and God's presence will decrease your visibility for a little bit and it will, the good part is it, it limits your distractions. Okay? It, it limits all those distractions. I was trying to think about how we could picture it here. And I'm like, there was a day when we used to have a haze machine back there. I don't know if you remember that. There was a little bit of a, a fog that kind of helped disperse light. But imagine if we had put it out there and we had hazed all of you so that you could worship without distraction. The best we've got for a glory cloud is we dim the lights a little bit during worship. Have you noticed that? So that maybe 
you can worship more freely and someone next to you can't see if you're crying and somebody next to you can't see your posture if you're sitting or you're standing or you're raising your hands or, or, what, or however you're encountering God that that's, you feel a little more anonymous. It, it's that sort of a thing. But it also does a few things for you. First of all, let me back up and say this. At Asbury and at other places where you've encountered the presence of God, here's the, here's the detractors. There are people who are saying we're emphasizing experience, that we're emphasizing experience. And I'm saying if you have truly encountered God and when you are in the cloud, experience is all you got. Because guess what you can't do in the cloud? You cannot do your taxes. You cannot uh, take care of your calendar. You cannot read your Bible in the middle of a cloud. There are people going, well, at Asbury, there wasn't enough people preaching the gospel during all that, so I don't know. They were just doing a lot of singing. Are you kidding me? When you're in the middle of a cloud, you, you cannot do all of those other things, valuable as they are. That's not what's happening. As a matter of fact, look what happened to the Old Testament priests. When God's glory showed up, they, they got put out of business for a few minutes. I hope they got paid time off. I hope they got some PTO time out of that because they couldn't do their work, right? They could not do the work of God because the experience was there. Sometimes when we have that in supernatural encounter with God, we may not even be able to stand up and do the things of God. You may just have to sit in it for a bit and soak it up or grab your mattress and just stay there and linger. So, again, on the mountain, they're lingering. This cloud shows up. It terrifies them. I don't want to be terrified in the presence of God, but I'll tell you this. I'd rather be terrified by God than have a God that I can figure out. A lot of us ask God about all the things going on in our life. Why, why, why? God, why are all these things happening? And you know what? We are going to serve a God who doesn't always give us all the answers to our why. I had a professor in college who... Um, he knew the things of God. He had uh, brothers who were serving in ministry in various places. And he was talking to me one day about the difference between high church traditions where everything's very structured and formal, like Catholics and uh, Episcopalians and everything is very structured, versus low church traditions like, you know, Baptists. And, and we would be considered that to some degree where we emphasize maybe a relationship with Jesus. And he was like, he did not like the new worship music that we, people were singing. He's like, I don't want God to be my homeboy. And I'm like, I get you. He's like, I want a God who's bigger than me. A God I can't figure out. And I would suggest to all of us who are frustrated sometimes that God isn't giving us all the answers that we want and we can't figure every single thing out. I'm telling you, you don't want to worship a God you can figure out. You need a God bigger than you. You need a God bigger than your brain. As relational as we can be with him, we want somebody bigger than that. I'd rather linger with that God. Number three. An encounter prepares us for what's next. See, the voice comes from the cloud, even though they can't see it. So also know this, that when you're in the cloud, you can't see Jesus, but you can hear him even when you can't see him. You can hear from God. He can speak to you. And, and that voice was verifying who Jesus was. Jesus had just been talking to him, to the, these disciples about who he was. And now there he is. The voice isn't for Jesus' sake. Jesus knows who he is. The voice was for the sake of Peter, James, and John, and says, this is Jesus. If you had any question, this is who he is, right? And here's some instruction. Listen to him. How often does God need to show up and remind us to listen to him? 
And he's saying, you know, this is my son. When Peter had asked whether or not he's Elijah, by the way, here is Elijah, here is Moses, and Jesus trumps all of them, right? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus is bigger than the law and the prophets. Listen to him. A very important thing for Jews. And then, here's the deal. Listen to him, not here on this mountain, because God did not then give them a big sermon. What he's saying is, now that you're going to go back down the mountain and enter back into real life, listen to him while you're there. Because this is the next verse in 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. And this is a big event. They came down the mountain to a huge crowd. The other disciples have been trying to minister, and they've got a father with a son who has been demon-possessed, and the disciples were trying to cast it out, and they were not winning. And so there's just this mess at the foot of the mountain. When you've had a wonderful encounter with Jesus on a mountain, we sometimes have to go back down the mountain right into the mess right into the mess, and get right back to work. The encounter prepares us for that. The encounter is important. It's a time of refreshing, but it brings us back down to where we're going to actually get into the grittiness of what humanity has to offer us, what it is that we have. No, however significant an encounter with God is, we have to come down and re-engage. I happen to love flowers, I love cut flowers, and my favorite thing about cut flowers is that they die. I love to give them to people, not because the people will die, but that the flowers will die. When I give flowers to someone, they'll put them in a vase, and when they're done enjoying them, they'll throw them away. If I give someone a gift, I feel like, oh, now I've pressured that person to put it on a shelf and dust it every day until they finally have the nerve to throw it away. I love the temporary nature of flowers, right? You enjoy them for a flash, and then they're gone. And an empty vase means there's always room for more. If I camp and have to put up a permanent dwelling on this encounter that I have with God, I have limited myself to this one single encounter with God. The fact that it can be a temporary thing where we have this high moment of being with God and now we come down from Asbury. Asbury's not going on. Nobody's making, you know, okay, Asbury 2024 going to happen again. Nobody's doing that, right? It's like it was a special moment. And part of what makes it special, part of what makes a vacation special is the fact that you don't live at the beach. It's that you get to go and you visit that and you get that refreshing and you come back down and you get back into what you're doing. Camping is temporary. What Peter wanted to do was temporary. He wanted it to last a little bit longer, but he wasn't asking for it to last forever. He wasn't trying to escape the work of it. We are not designed to live a life of mountaintop experiences, a big collection of those. We are not designed to create great highlight reels. We're not designed to be constantly looking back and wishing for some certain point in history where we, which we love the most, someplace in our past. God gives us encounters to remind us who he is and, that, and to allow us to listen to him and to prepare us for the next part of our journey. Maybe you've seen these people coming up here. If you've never been to the vineyard, it looks like a, most of you have been here before. 
you know that these folks are here to pray for you. Now, I can't promise you that you're going to have an encounter with God today that will transfix you and give you a, you know, a glory tan. I can't promise you that Elijah and Moses are going to show up. I'm pretty sure they won't. That was pre-resurrection Jesus. But I am telling you that some of us wish we could have an encounter like that. And you can be prepared for that alone, but it can also be ushered in through the prayers of others. And so I would encourage you to take that opportunity. Let's come to our feet as we prepare to go into this last song. And I'm thinking about two different groups of people this morning who might want to come forward and approach someone for prayer. First of all, let me say this. If you know the people up here, you can come up to someone and say that you know very, you know, you know them. You don't have to say very much and they can pray for you deeply because they know. Sometimes there's joy in having anonymity. Go to somebody you don't know and let them pray for you in ways that they don't know anything. And then you can really trust that that is exactly what God is saying and that it's not biased in any way. Maybe you feel freer to do that. So for some of us, we are craving a significant encounter with God. Maybe you never had it. Maybe you'd like to have one again. Some of us, a different group of people, I think, are facing a valley. You're on the way down the mountain. You've maybe had a significant moment, but you are down that you need encouragement and strength from God to walk into something that you're dreading. You know it's coming. It's not worry. It's not even fret. It is just, wow, I wish I didn't have to do this path. I wish I had another path in front of me. And you need to arm yourself for whatever you're dreading and refuse to drown in worry over it. So I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And after I'm done praying, I'm going to step down. They're going to sing another song. And any of you who would like to come forward and respond to that, come forward. You can actually come forward while I'm praying if that makes it easier. Let's pray. God, we just come to you this morning and we recognize that, that you are not a flat God. You are a God who gives us experiences that, are, that can be mountain time, mountaintop at one point in our life and yet you walk with us in the valley at other points. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the ebb and flow of what it means to be in relationship with you. But God, right now we have people who are in a valley. They are walking through or they are facing some really tough things. And they need the encouragement and the comfort to carry on. They need strength and encouragement. They, they need to not drown themselves in worry. And we know that as a community of faith that you invite us to corporately pray for each other and lift each other up. You've told us if someone is sick to go forward and let people pray over them. If people are mourning, let, that we mourn with each other. That pe if people are in joy, that we, that we celebrate with each other. God, right now, we invite you to come. We invite you to empower your people that they might walk more fully with you. Before we go any further, is there anyone else who wants to come up? I've got someone right here. Maybe I, I think I want to pray specifically. If there's anybody facing a journey that you would like to have prayed for. Anybody else? Folks, we know there's some, there's some tough stuff going on. We know that. This is a time. This is a time for you to come and, and get prayer. This is a time for us to surround each other.
All right, let's go into this last song.